As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. It's good to be here. And this is uh, re-resuming, re, I suppose, our, our, our long-running series over the last few months on the kind of broad, grand narrative of Scripture, the deep story of the Bible, as it's sometimes called. We we started with a back in the last year with a chapter on on creation. We then moved on to the fall. We then did redemption, and we're now kind of completing the story with what we're calling new creation. Yeah. Um... It's us trying to pretend to be theologians, Tim, which I know is, is <laughs> dangerous ground. Terribly good at it, but nonetheless, hey, we're uh, there's there's a wonderful. Just I'm just reminded of a bit where C.S. Lewis, uh, who of course was not a professional theologian, um, and never did any theological training, and uh, he's he's got a a wonderful essay where he sort of uh, says, you know, I, I'm daring to comment on on what some of the shepherds believe and. And he says, of course, I'm not a shepherd. I, I'm just a sheep. But e- even the sheep are allowed to have the occasional bleat. <laughs> and he then proceeds to give this devastating critique of liberal theology oh, and particularly biblical criticism. You know, so it's, a, it's a kind of sort of faux humility. But um, so anyway, yeah. we're, just tradition, yeah, we're just sheep <laughs> having a little bleat. Um, but as we said in previous episodes, the reason we're talking about this is because it is highly relevant to what we kind of we talk about on regular episodes you know that we we don't want to just you know when we're struck with a an unexpected technological or or scientific development to just try and of you know grasp at ideas out of the air when we're trying to think about how christians should respond to this we actually want to have a foundation a framework and an ethical lens through which to view these things that is grounded in the deep story of scripture in in 2000 years of Christian tradition of much wiser, godlier people than us who've gone before, so that we have some basis for kind of building our maybe slightly more kind of speculative ethics on top of that. So so that's, that's why we're, we're, that's why we we're spending time on it. And that's why I want to share it with the listeners is because actually this makes helps us make sense of all the other stuff we talk about. Yeah, for me, certainly, um, I, I first came across this framework as a, as a, a fairly young Christian in my 20s um and i've always ever since i've found it a helpful framework is one that i've constantly gone back to 
And although it's at one level, it's very simple, it's actually very profound. And in particular, I think what I've grown to appreciate is that fundamentally, this is about a narrative. Um, it's about the great narrative of the Bible. And um, it's been said that we have to be, we have to indwell the story of the Bible as the true story of the whole world. In other words, when we read the story of the Bible, <clears throat> it, it's not just one narrative amongst many. It's claiming to be the narrative of of the cosmos, and the also meta narrative. It's a meta. Yes, all right. Um, and and what's more, <laughs> it's a it's claiming that we are actually part of the narrative. We're not an observer reading this novel and saying, "Gosh, that's an interesting story." No, this is our story as well, mm. and. The thing that really excites and interests me, especially about this last episode of The Four, you know, we're looking into the future, is that it's a common trope, isn't it, that if you read a spy novel, a whodunit, Agatha Christie, you name it, um, it's often that the meaning of the entire narrative is only revealed in the final pages. It's as you read those final pages and the denouement that you say, oh, that's the reason that that happened. Oh, and now I understand. That was why she said that. That's mm. what was going on there. And I, I, so it's fascinating, isn't it, that a narrative can go forward in time, but you actually only understand it as it gets to the end. And so in the same way, it seems that's also true of the grand narrative of the cosmos. We can only understand the meaning of what's going on now if we read the final pages. And when you read the Bible backwards in that sense, through through the lens of what it's what what it tells us is coming, you can then go back through the whole New Testament and the Old Testament back to creation. And as you say, it starts elements start to fall into place and to make more sense and and you say, Okay, that's why this happens that's why god said that that's why and it and it and you almost have to get to the end of the story to be able to make sense of of the very beginning that's right and so if you just take those four creation fall redemption and then this final one has different different terms the the original term that i uh learned was consummation um which of course has all kinds of implications not least that you talk about the consummation of a marriage and so on it has kind of sexual connotations and and yet i think it's partly an appropriate term but i i think also to think about creation for redemption new creation is also a helpful way of looking at it but if, if you think of those four you can see that in there's an inner story of fallen redemption two and three but that, and which is often the the way that the Christian story is often presented in evangelical teaching and preaching, that it's basically a story of fallen redemption. But that fallen redemption narrative is nested within a greater narrative of creation to new creation. Um, and I think it's just interesting and to be honest rather sad that in in contemporary christianity as, as we experience it here in the uk um it it seems as though the story stops at redemption it's almost like as though people are reading an agatha christie and everyone stops before the final chapter hmm. because what's the point 
in a, before Hercule Poirot has gathered everyone in the drawing room. You know. It was so, the butler. It's always the butler. <laughs> was it the butler? So, but so, why is it? Why do you think our contemporary evangelicalism is says has a lot to say about one, two, and three, and seems to markedly underplay four? It's a good question. It's certainly, I think, undeniable that a lot of the kind of yeah church traditions that we're familiar with seem to be laser focused on uh, on fall, you know, on sin and cross. You know, if the apple to the to to Calvary rather than from the garden to the New Jerusalem, to use that kind of language. Um, I think there's a part of it which is that it seems talking about heaven seems kind of cheesy and trite. It's all very kind of remote, doesn't feel directly relevant to how we live our lives now. I know a lot of churches focus a lot of their teaching about, you know, it's about evangelism. So if you're not yet a Christian, believe. And if you do already believe, it's about discipleship. It's about how do you live in the light of that belief in the here and now? How are we supposed to be ordering our lives? Um, How are we supposed to be, um, you know, contributing to the life of the church, sharing our faith, you know, all that stuff. And then I think, to sit back and say, and here's what's going to happen after you die and Jesus returns, feels quite airy fairy. It feels distant and, um, yeah, just yeah, something that's yeah. not massively directly relevant to, to what we're doing in the here and now. Yeah, I think there's a lot in that. But if you were to take a sort of long term historical perspective over of the church over, you know, a thousand, two thousand years. I think you could argue that this contemporary sort of 1960s onward evangelicalism is surprisingly this world orientated. It's surprisingly materialistic. It's surprisingly focused on the here and now. And if you were to look back at many other forms of Christian worship, Christian teaching, Christian uh, expressions over the last 2000 years many many of them were much more orientated towards uh, looking towards the future towards the spiritual realities um, so uh, why is it in the in the bigger historical context that we've become so this world focused is it actually that we are absorbing the materialism of a very of, a, of our culture I mean, that's the obvious answer isn't it that you know we live in an era of late capitalism, as it's sometimes called, you know, we've reached this kind of apotheosis of, of consumerism and materialism and kind of satiation. Christianity is an intensely, unfortunately, intensely kind of middle-class preoccupation on the whole in the Western world, um, where people live comfortable lives. And so I think a part of the story is that we have become focused on the here and now because that reflects the kind of preoccupations of our wider culture, which doesn't, you know, which is not apocalyptic, which is not obsessed with kind of striving for progress. It's about how do we live good lives right now? And we don't really think too much about the past or too much about the future. I mean, the other thing I would say, actually, is that the the only kind of elements of Christian tradition, evangelical tradition, which do focus on eschatology, as it's known, the eschaton, the, the the second coming, the what's all that, it, it becomes very, very kooky, you know. This is basically coming out of the United States. But, you know, when I was growing up, the the only people who were really talking about heaven and the second coming were talking about 
the rapture or the left behind series of novels. They didn't even come across yes. those and, mm. and deeply complicated theological arguments about, are you a pre-millennialist, a post-millennialist, or an amillennialist? You know, when is the, the thousand-year reign of Christ going to come? Is it going to come after the second coming, before the second coming? Will all the non-Christians disappear? Will they be converted? Where does Israel play into this, you know, dispensationalism? And, it, and it, you know, as a non-theologically trained person, I got the impression and was kind of steered this way by the people kind of teaching the Bible to me as a teenager that this is very silly. This is very untheological this is a poor use of scripture it's speculative it's unhelpful it's unwise just don't go near it it's super kooky and so mm. but there was nothing to replace it it was just like mm. if if you talk about the end times you know that's the language of you talk about end times that is a road to kind of like falling out of robust evangelical orthodoxy so just don't go near it mm. interesting yeah i think there's a lot in that i also wonder whether when it comes to um the public face of, of the Christian faith. How do we present Christianity uh, to to those who don't believe in it um, and to our secular world? I wonder whether the the that Marxist criticism that uh, Christianity was an opiate of the people that what it did was that it dulled their pain and their sensibilities because it gave them this false hope. Mm. of a future rapture a future paradise and and in marxist terms that's all false consciousness that's um that's a way of preventing uh the masses from rising you know you give them all this anodyne stuff about future mm. future resolution of all their suffering maybe when it comes to apologetics and to presenting a a face to the world people would christian uh, apologists were so sensitive to that jibe that they downplayed any any kind of yeah. arguments about the future yeah i can certainly believe that i think they're probably mostly subconsciously but there is certainly i think people yeah people definitely i think christians often feel sensitive about the idea that it's kind of wish fulfillment it's trite it's naive and if you want to show christianity to be a kind of intellectually robust body of of ideas um that you know you don't want to fall into the trap of being kind of easily dismissed by this kind of post-enlightenment kind of arch cynical oh well of course you would say that that's just wish fulfillment and so maybe we don't talk about it because we do sub secretly kind of worry as you say that that kind of jibe has has teeth and um mm. and that it's you know it's all about the cross and about sin and atonement and um we don't really think very much about you know the rest of the rest of the story and certainly i can remember as as a as a young christian you know i really got the idea of the cross and and how jesus death was something of momentous significance and how it had huge implications for the way i lived and so on but i was often puzzled about the resurrection and why some people said it was so important uh, because why did it matter so much? I mean, provided Jesus has died for our sins, then, then, okay, we're going to die, but we know, we know that because of his death, we've been set free. So, so why, why this big deal about the resurrection? Do you know, I actually had exactly the same, you know, 40 years later, exactly the same kind of internal 
thoughts as I was as I was a teenager, because I think exactly the same way the kind of the evangelicalism I grew up in was hyper laser focused on the cross and atonement and, and of substitution and of you know an almost kind of mathematical formulaic approach. You know, there was a there was a debt in the ledger. Uh, my sin and then that debt had to be wiped out and it was wiped out by Jesus's death and that kind of brings me back into right standing with God I'm no longer in debt the problem has been solved and then the question the question is well then why does the story not end there why does it then why do the gospels make so much of the resurrection when actually Jesus has already won by dying and it's great it's fun that he gets resurrected that's kind of cool but like how is this essential how is this necessary when because if it's all about um obliterating the penalty for sin that's already been achieved by his death and so i think unintentionally no one wanted to tell me this but you kind of presume that well therefore resurrection is kind of secondary it's kind of a nice addition it's a fun kind of twist at the end of the story uh but it's not fundamental to what jesus came to do like the job he came to do was die not die and rise again Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Whereas now, um, almost 50 years later, uh, I have to say my perspective is, is, has, is completely different. And although, yes, the cross still has that central place, it is the cross fused with the resurrection. The cross without the resurrection would be simply meaningless um, in my thinking now. So, so it is interesting how these... Uh, these things change um and and in particular as you get older you know it is easy to lapse into a kind of pessimism fatalism even despair uh and uh, particularly you know the world today and the news we're hearing and so on it, despair is not something confined to the oldies is it i mean there's a whole lot of despair in the in the younger generations as well. But I think for me as an old person, coming back time and time to the realities of the resurrection and all that it represents is an absolutely central part of my of my Christian faith. Hmm. And what the kind of orthodox teaching of the church, which I wasn't hadn't had very well explained to me as a teenager and only grass later, is that actually the, the, the death and resurrection are an unseparatable kind of single event you know it's exactly. not that jesus died and he'd done the job and then god as a billy bonus threw in him a resurrection it's that if he hadn't been raised the whole thing is pointless the whole rescue mission has failed because if we are united with christ then if he isn't raised then we won't be raised irrespective of what, of what happened of, of 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 him taking our our sin on the cross yeah in fact christianity just becomes a version of platonism um, which says that in the end, it's the immortal soul that's the important bit. And uh, Jesus's immortal soul has gone back to his father. And, you know, and our immortal souls have been rescued. And, uh, and th- we that can is leave behind this veil of tears that is the physical world and ascend onto a cloud, exactly. strum- strumming a harp in kind of yeah. disembodied bliss. But of course, what that message is that death is one. Uh, death is natural death is part of the way that disembodied souls are released from their prisons and and death is therefore good death is the part of the release i mean this is this is platonism this is also uh 
Gnosticism, which the early church very early on was confronted with. I mean, um, it even it even has similarities with completely other Eastern traditions, you know, Hindu traditions about reincarnation or in Buddhism, where the goal is to break the cycle of death by becoming disembodied, by separating yourself from this, you know, endless birth, death, birth, death. But the whole point is you want to leave behind. Uh, death is unavoidable. And so the whole point is not to defeat it, but is to supersede it by becoming disembodied. That's right. And of course, this is why the early apostolic teaching about the resurrection of Christ was treated with such contempt by the professional philosophers and thinkers. And you, you get that, don't you, in that wonderful description of Paul in the Areopagus, mm. you know, where the, you know, the elite come to discuss their advanced uh, philosophical theories and here comes a babbler who's talking about people being physically resurrected my dear how crude is that what is this babbler he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities i mean mm. we've moved on from that that's really sort of low-grade stuff for the mm. peasants and yet that was the whole point wasn't it absolutely and and the point i was i remember reading years ago that is that christian resurrection is not just kind of like shocking and crass and antithetical to kind of refined classical philosophy from the greek world but it was also shocking to the pharisaical jewish tradition that paul came from that jesus was encountering in the gospels you know they didn't believe that individual people could be raised from the dead or that god had any interest in that so what 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 jesus is teaching and and what the, the the disciples are witnessing to is outrageous to both contexts, the Jewish one and the, the Greek kind of secular one. Exactly. And it was completely unexpected for everybody. Nobody but nobody thought this was going to happen. Of course, you know, you go back and you can see these hints in the Old Testament and if they'd only read it carefully hmm. and they could have said what Isaiah had said. And Well, this is the whole road it's... to Emmaus, isn't it? You know, where yeah. the resurrected Jesus appears <laughs> and the two disciples, one don't recognise him, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. But also, you know, he has to spend, you know, two hours. It's a two hour walk to Emmaus, two hours talking them through and pointing out all the bits of the scripture <laughs> yes. that they missed they where it seen. showed that yeah. the son of man had to suffer and then rise from the dead. Yeah. So it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, completely and utterly unexpected. Nobody thought this was going to happen. And yet, boom, um, something happens. And uh, those those stories of the you know that first easter sunday are extraordinary stories they still when you read them they still have this air of utter incomprehension amazement it's almost like it's too wonderful <laughs> to believe i don't i don't i don't believe this i mean this is doubting thomas isn't it doubting thomas says it's just too wonderful it's too so good to be true. It's too good to be true. I don't want to be fooled again. I don't want the terrible disillusionment. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe this. It's too good to be true. Mm. And and so I guess we need to really think about what do we learn from the resurrected Jesus? That What does that tell us about our future hope, about the bigger picture? So we know, we know this one man, the God man himself was resurrected, but what can we draw from these stories? What does the Bible say about what that means for are kind of eschatological resurrection yeah and and it, and of course 
part of the whole problem here is that we're now into speculation and controversy and um i think this is another reason isn't it why preachers so often want to steer clear of all this stuff mm. uh, because you can't get of get away from from speculation um and yet there is definitely some remarkable things to to glean from this and uh, we'll put some books in the uh, another further reading in the in the study notes for me uh, the book which i found absolutely remarkable although also almost impenetrable is a book called resurrection moral order by oliver o'donovan um and because in it he he unpicks some of the broader implications of resurrection um in in, in a very profound and, and masterful way but in essence i think what the resurrection is a confrontation with divine power a completely unexpected uh, new insight into the power of god and it, instead of the power of god being revealed in their purely spiritual non-material way actually the power of god and god himself is being revealed in physical form in a material form but i would want to describe it as it in other words it's physics but it's physics 2.0 it it's it's a it's a different kind of physics it's a more advanced kind of physics but you know as i as i thought about it reflected about it there's one simple fact about the resurrection which i don't think receives enough attention and, and that is that all the gospel writers are absolutely adamant that the grave is empty uh, that the molecules which compose jesus body those physical bits of stuff all the all the flesh and the bones and the bits of jesus body they are not physically in the grave and so the obvious question is well where are those molecules hmm. and that's why you know the initial thought thinking is well there's no body here therefore someone's taken it away the romans the pharisees the gardener and then they never possibly close their mind that those molecules might still be walking around the earth but walking rather than being dragged and so when the you know, Mary in the garden sees Jesus. She doesn't recognize him, thinks it's the gardener. The disciples on the road to Emmaus don't recognize him. And, you know. Absolutely. Do, do we, I've often pondered about that. Is that because he looked different? Or is that because it was just simply so inconceivable, you know, in the way that if I knew someone had died and then saw them in the street, I would just presume that it will obviously can't be them. It must be someone else. Or were they kind of supernaturally kept from recognizing him to make a kind of point? A very good question. And again, we're into speculation, aren't we? I mean, my hunch is that he did look different. Well, it, the, 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 the fundamental thing we, we have time and time again in these resurrections is it's the same but different. There is continuity but discontinuity. So in some extraordinary way, Jesus' appearance was the same but different. And because it's very striking, isn't it? Mary, who, who has this very intimate relationship with jesus you know who has has no doubt 
stared into his face for hours, looks at the risen Jesus and doesn't recognise him and thinks he's the gardener. And it's not until he says those words, Mary, that that instantly recognisable voice breaks in on her. Um, so, So he's the same but different. And yet, you know, he's got the wounds in his mm. in his hands and his so, side yeah. in his side so so there is absolute proof that it's the same mm. the same molecules and also not just physically i think what's else that's so wonderful is that he's the same personality wise mm. you know so so if you think of the scene on the of the the barbecue on the beach you know I've often think, you know, if you were writing a science fiction story and you finally got to the crux point when the human, divine human, has reappeared, you know, in total power, has destroyed death, now what you're going to write, and the last thing you're going to write is this prosaic, homely little scene of a fire and some fish, and are you hungry? And which bit would you like? Yeah. And and yet, it seems to me that's the whole point. Before the resurrection, he loved to spend time just doing these simple things, mm. providing food, uh, talking, chatting. And lo and behold, after the resurrection, he's the same person. He's got the same personality. He's got the same interest in his disciples. He teases them. He He guides them. He challenges them. Peter, do you love me? He's the same guy. Mm. And yet he's totally different. And that's what I find so baffling and intriguing about the scars in particular, because as you say, it's the same body. It's still got the scars, yet it can kind of, you know, move, walk through walls and, and disappear and reappear in certain places without needing to travel. And there's kind of hints of, of them this being kind of some kind of different super powered kind of human um, and I think in many ways, often our understanding of resurrection and of the of the new creation is, is that, you know, it's like the world it is now, but everything is fixed. So everything that we have now, but it's made better and fixed. And so you, the, the presumption, I think, if, you know, if I was writing the Gospels, you know, the presumption would be, well, of course, Jesus's body is the same as it was before, but it's all fixed. You know, so his kind of, you know, his bad knee is fixed and, you know, <laughs> that scar from when he hit his head as a child is gone because he's perfected, mm. but it's not. He's mm. he's still got a hole in his side where the spear mm. went. Mm. And that, and the implication in the, in the scripture is that to this day, the resurrected, ascended Jesus at the right hand of the father still has a body which bears scars, which is in some sense not perfect. How do we understand that? Absolutely. And yet, you know, the, some of the old old hymn writers, I think, isn't it, um, talks about the scars being glorified, that suffering and glory are two sides of the same coin. And, uh, and therefore, actually, what is Jesus's glory? What, what contributes towards Jesus's glory in the new creation? And answer, it's the scars, you know, that that uh, this amazing paradox and is it possible that the same will apply to us mm. that the the scars we bear that come from our service our desire to to follow christ the 
the the things that that uh, damaged us as we uh, and, and all the rest is it possible that they will also remain and be glorified again who knows uh, these are all this is all speculation but i think there's a profound spiritual significance there behind the scars the brokenness of jesus is also his glory mm. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. And what I love about it in particular is that it, it doesn't, it's not about like an etch a sketch, you know, those things where you do a drawing with all the magnets and then you just wipe the slider <laughs> and it's just completely gone, like it was yeah. never there. And that Jesus's resurrection is not an etch a sketch, they haven't just shaken it up and wiped it out. It says actually everything the 33 years of his life from birth till death on the cross that mattered, that counted, it doesn't get discounted and discarded and wiped away and undone. And it's not just the scars, therefore, but it's also the memories he has of other good times, grilling fish on the beach and chatting with Mary and the other disciples. And, you know, I think it, it honours, even divinizes the, the, the life he had before and says those 33 years that mattered. It's mm. now been consummated. It's been perfected. It's been fulfilled. It's come to fruition, but it doesn't obliterate everything that came before. We're not starting from scratch. We are taking Jesus's kind of flawed pre-resurrection body and, as you say, turning it into Jesus 2.0, but it's not starting again. It's it's the Jesus that he was always supposed to be. And likewise, that means that our stories, all the way up to our deaths and our eventual resurrection into glory, does not, again, obliterate or discard everything that came before. The good and the bad are somehow bound up into our perfected resurrected bodies. Absolutely. And that's the way it was always meant to be. That was always part of the plan. And in fact, you know, some theologians have, have argued that, um, you know, if the fall hadn't happened, God's plan was always to go from one to four. It was, in other words, he never intended to start again fresh. He always intended to incorporate the... Um, 
the creation into his own being. So again, if you just reflect about the significance of the incarnation and resurrection, when Jesus is born of Mary, his body takes on human DNA. It takes on all the history of life on earth. In fact, you know, from a biological evolutionary perspective, uh, human DNA carries billions of years of life history Mm. on on the planet and when god takes on human form and and his body is born within the body of mary he takes on that uh, that life uh, the whole history of life on earth is incorporated into the divinity into the, to the divine being which is now uh, one person of two natures as the church father said and so uh, that was always the plan they, it was always god's plan to uh to take the cosmos into his own being in some extraordinary way but to do it through people Hmm. and and then there's this beautiful idea which i got originally from from paul blackham he he said that it's as though god has made this cosmos it's made it out of dust and then he stoops down and he picks up a handful of dust and he pulls it into his very own being and then when we are die and are raised, the physical stuff of our bodies is pulled through into physics 2.0. Mm. And then after us comes the entire creation. So uh, all the non-human animals, all the mountains and the galaxies and everything else is pulled through and transformed into physics 2.0. And that's why Paul says the whole creation is groaning and and, trans- and waiting mm. for the redemption of humans. It's only going to be through the physical transformation of human beings that the physical cosmos can be ultimately transformed. I mean, that's the big picture. Mm. The the big part of the New Testament that people often go to to think about the resurrection is um, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul has a kind of extended bit of writing about um you know what is sown dishonorable we raised honorable and talking about seeds and flowers and bodies and perishables you know <laughs> obviously we're not going to do a full bible study there but w- what do you pull out of that 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 matters in this story we're telling there what, what what can we draw from that particular particular passage well you know being interested in biology i think that seed analogy is extraordinary because the extraordinary thing about a seed is it contains within itself all the DNA, all the information that is going to make up the future uh, plant or human or whatever. And so there is a hidden continuity. I mean, if you look at a seed, I sometimes show a seed um, and say, well, can you see what it's going to be? Can you can you tell what's... Can you see what the plant's going to be? And you see this little brown bit and actually there are a few gardeners in the audience and they say yeah i I know what it is (laughs) and the answer is it's a sunflower seed and then the next picture has the sunflower Mm. and then we say well the point is it's the same thing the seed is in the process of becoming the sunflower there is continuity and discontinuity they they are the same but different and what paul is saying is your body is like that locked inside your body is all the information which is going to make up this utterly different and inex- inconceivable reality of the sunflower. Yeah. 
which is yeah my kind of something we're very used to the idea that you know you plant an apple seed and one day it will grow into an apple tree but actually when you step back and look at the seed versus the tree it's it's mind-blowing that all the genetic information needed to grow into a tree that then produces more seeds is concoded in this tiny little brown pip you know barely bigger than a grain of rice and yet somehow everything needed to turn into a tree the size of a house is is locked away inside there and i guess it also tells us something about for me it tells us something about the futility of 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 kind of precise speculation about our future hope because if you were able to talk to an apple seed and say (laughs) what do you think it's going to be like to be a tree exactly i think the seed has got no ability whatsoever to encapsulate or even the language to talk about that because it's well, we're it, going to be brown and 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 strong and big <laughs> and, and and confident. Yeah. You know? What would That's it feel like to be? to be a tree compared to being a seed? <laughs> um, you know, and and not to say that we shouldn't think about what we're doing in this whole podcast about the future, but also potentially, I think, a note of caution about people who get so wrapped up in the precise mechanics of how the rapture will work and all that stuff is that actually, um these things are to a degree incomprehensible to us in our kind of fallen pre pre consummated state yeah they're incomprehensible but but for me now they in the this incorporates such profoundly hopeful message because what it says is that what we do here and now is not a waste of time mm. you know um because at the end of that chapter, Paul has talked about all the wonderful transformation in 1 Corinthians 15. And he might well say, so therefore, guys, you really don't need to worry because God is going to do this. You know, just it doesn't matter what you do now because you can be absolutely confident that God is going to raise you from the dead. In fact, he says, my beloved brothers and sisters always abound in the work of the Lord, because you know, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So, so he ties the fact that what we do here and now is not a waste of time because of this reality. And and for me, that constant reflection on on um, on that is, is really important to remind me about what I do today really matters Hmm. and that even when it seems that there is loss you know you you pour out your love and your care on another human being and then it seems like it's just wasted and the person dies and or uh your your love and compassion is thrown in your face and you think why did i bother Mm -hmm. um and yet what this christian hope teaches us you know as paul says in 1 corinthians 13 love never fails there there is uh something which uh we we hang on to and you know i I, this image at the end of revelation of the bride who appears in all her glory and and then it's in that it was given to her to wear her garments pure and clean and 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 glorious and and so what are the garments in which the bride is clothed and the answer is 
for the wedding garments of the bride are the righteous deeds of the saints. In other words, all those innumerable tiny acts of faith and hope and commitment and sacrifice and discipline, all those tiny acts are not lost. They're not forgotten. They're part of the eternal, glorious garments of the bride. Hmm. And people often go, don't they, to Revelation 21 when they're trying to think about heaven, the new creation, where we're going to live. And you have this remarkable passage about the new heaven and the new earth and and the voice from the saints is, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. How do you think in the light of that glorious hope that we've been kind of just sketching out briefly, that unbelievably kind of exciting future that we have in store for us, how does that change how we do ethics in the here and now? You know, how does this theology of the new creation how sh- and the resurrection, how should that um, impinge on our other episodes, how we talk about science, healthcare, technology? Hmm. Well, I, you know, it's a hugely important question and, and one which, you know, we continue to um, wrestle with, don't we? I mean, number one for me is we shouldn't be embarrassed about this story. Um, we shouldn't downplay it. This this story, even though uh, many in the secular world will, will jibe and uh, mock secretly many are deeply envious hmm. that, that that such an amazing story could be true it's almost it's too good to be true um so i, th- I don't think we should downplay it and i i think we have got to live every day in, in the light of it and there's this amazing quote that comes from ashley cooper the earl of shaftesbury who was spent his life in devoted to philanthropy, an immensely wealthy man who who pioneered so much of social reformation. And uh, he, he said toward the end of his life, I do not think in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. And I just think that's, that shows that for him, the reality of the future hope, far from it um, uh, leading to a kind of quietism, um, did quite the reverse. It inspired him, much as in Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, it inspired him to to abound in the work of the Lord um, because he knew it wasn't in vain. Hmm. And that's the kind of fear, I think, isn't it, from some Christians that if they get too excited or too into the new creation and, and the resurrection and our future hope, you fail to do the kind of work that we've been called to do in the here and now. And, you know, and we're not supposed to Christians to be kind of like giddy and and uh, we're supposed to be kind of sober minded about doing the work of evangelism and discipleship and church planting and X, Y and Z in the here and now and not get distracted by by what's coming next whereas you all seem to saying actually the people who are most captured by the truth of the end of the story are the ones who are able to live out this chapter of the story best absolutely and also there's a there's a wonderful 
idea, you know, that that in in physics 2.0, time doesn't work in the same way. And so there's a sense that all this is already happening. The uh, the wedding feast of the Lamb is taking place. Hmm. The melody of of glory and celebration and worship is already happening. And if we've got ears to hear, we can hear the faint echo of this bleeding back into the present. Uh, a fragrance from the future can come. And, and I think, you know, from time to time, I just get glimpses of that melody. Uh, you don't, you're okay, you can't get glimpses of a melody. Echoes of that melody or a fragrance that I've never smelt or... Um, something beautiful that I've never seen. Uh, I get glimpses of it. And the interesting thing is that that fragrance can invade an intensive care unit. It can invade the deathbed and the the place of suffering and loss and grief. Um, so a beautiful phrase, which I've pinched from somewhere else, I don't know where it comes from. Um, hope is to hear the melody of the future. And faith is to dance to that melody in the present. I'm always struck why um, you wrote in in one of your your first books about this, and you had a quote from another paediatrician who you'd worked with alongside when you were working in the neonatal intensive care unit in the hospital. And he said something along the lines of, oh, you know, it's much easier for you than it is for me, John. When I look after a dying baby, I'm sending them into the ground, into oblivion. When you're looking after a dying baby, you're sending them to heaven. You know, I'm sure he was saying that quite tongue in cheek. But do you think that's actually true that because of your convictions, because of our convictions as Christians about what happens next, that can actually shape how we make choices in our lives in the future about how we, you know, in this instance, how you care for a dying child, but maybe in lots of other fields as well? Absolutely. I think it's true. I think it really does change. Uh, and I've no doubt um you know, in, in medicine, you do see some doctors who have devoted themselves to fighting death out of a sort of existential horror of death. And everything they do is, is somehow to try to prevent death, to keep death at bay. And, and, and you sense that in many ways they're wrestling with their own demons about death in their extraordinary efforts to keep other patients alive. And, and and doctors like that find it very difficult to ever stop, to ever say enough is enough, it, they, because that's to say that death is one. Whereas I think Christian physicians such as myself, and there are many others also, say that actually, yes, we do see that death is an enemy. Yes, we desperately want to fight against it. But actually, we don't see it as the final enemy. Um, and therefore there's a time when death can change from being this horrific, frightening reality into even a gateway, a strange kind of healing into a new and better reality. Mm. Because we know that it is, um, yeah, ultimately has been defeated by Jesus, demonstrated by his resurrection and, um, yeah. And I'm sure that's true in lots of other less directly fields you know knowing that the people that we're dealing with are that their that their bodies are supposed to be kind of resurrected afresh 
looks the same but different should change all kinds of things about you know medical enhancements and transhumanism and you know i'm sure we'll talk about it at some point but you'll see in the news about elon musk implanting chips in people's brains and all of these things like how we think about as eth- the ethics of that can o- can only be done in the context of actually what do we know about human bodies well is that we know that they're on a trajectory to be towards being kind of glorified and raised up and pulled into the the stuff of the godhead itself absolutely but it's also you know historically and today it continues to motivate christian engagement with the nobodies don't they the outcasts the you know the drug addicts the people with hopeless psychiatric conditions learning difficulties um the people the very nobodies of society this genuine sense of the the hope that is within us um motivates and drives people to to care sacrificially for the for the people who the rest of society disregards Hmm. a final question then before we wrap up i mentioned earlier about kind of my hesitation or anxieties around eschatology because people get so obsessed with dispensationalism and millennialism and and unpicking what that precise verse in revelation means we've talked we haven't we talked about that we talked a lot about the actual you know the resurrection of our of jesus our resurrection but how the actual end times unfold does that hold any interest to you does that feature in this conversation or is that just a completely separate kind of theological dead-end sideline it's a really interesting question and it's probably it would almost do for another episode because i think it's a big it's a big topic I personally uh, think it is really important to try to understand the signs of the times. I mean, Jesus said, you know, you can work out whether it's going to be sunny tomorrow or it's going to rain, but you can't read the signs of the times. And uh, I, th- I really think, therefore, there is a role for at least some people to be really trying to understand what's going on in the in the current world and then relate it to what God's providential purposes are in history. And what strikes me is the way that I was taught this, these four uh, signposts, these, this, these four foundations was that between number three and number four, not a lot happened, you know, (laughs) that, that basically Jesus rose from the dead, the spirit came and then uh, our task was to follow Christ, to do his works in the world, to spread the good news about Jesus and to wait for his coming when he was going to wind up the whole thing. Um, and what nobody saw is what we're actually experiencing now. Well, virtually nobody saw this, which is a completely runaway, explosive growth of science and technology, healthcare, agriculture, energy, you name it, which is utterly and totally transforming the world as we watch. And this seems to be on a runaway exponential growth curve. And the massive question for Christians is what on earth does all this mean? What are God's purposes in this new surprising thing? You know, is this another surprising twist in the story, which none of us saw? I mean, you know, one of the things which strike me is if, if you look in the, what were the, what are the works of the kingdom, which the prophet Isaiah 
foretold it was that the blind would see and the hungry would be fed. And uh, we are now seeing in the last 20, 30 years, after 2,000 years of Christian history, we are seeing the signs of the kingdom coming true across the world in a way that's never been seen before. Only the works of the kingdom seem to be happening not through primarily God's people, although God's people are strongly involved, but a lot of it is happening through secular atheists who are living out the most astonishing technological changes. And so what are God's purposes in all this? And and what does this mean for the preaching and teaching of the gospel? These seem to, I don't have the answers to that, but they do seem to me to be incredibly important questions. And, And I'm just struck by how little people within the Christian bubble seem firstly to be aware of what's actually taking place across the globe or secondly to be interested in it or think it possibly has any relationship to the great story of the cosmos yeah that's very interesting and you can see very different responses to that fact i mean i'm just thinking about you know on the environmental angle you have christians who say well you know because we know that that god is um you know that that god cares about this creation is going to redeem it and that we need to look after it and and then you have others who say you know well because you know i'm thinking of uh the very controversial pastor mark driscoll i once saw a sermon he said where he basically said you know what i believe in jesus is coming back to burn this all up so yeah i drive a four by four a gas guzzling (laughs) truck and i don't worry about my carbon emissions (laughs) you know and so taking taking this in very different very different ways (laughs) Uh, so yeah well look we need to come back and talk about this another time Clearly I think we it's this will yeah. be part two of uh, <laughs> the future hope all right but, uh... let's draw, draw it to a close there then um thanks everyone uh for listening i hope that was interesting um please do get in touch as always we're interested to hear your thoughts your feedback your comments you can email molad at premier.org.uk um don't forget always to check out dad's website johnwyatt.com with lots of more interesting resources to read and listen to and watch Um, and we'll be back next week with another episode but until then bye-bye you've been listening to matters of life and death